Well, today my sermon title might be a little unnerving, When the Church Gets Ugly. Have you been in a church before where it got ugly? I hope not. But maybe you have some war stories that you could share. Have you ever been into a church where you just automatically feel not welcome? It's always an interesting thing that the things that we think, the questions that we ask when somebody comes into the church that we don't recognize. Well, who is that? Well, maybe you could say hello, introduce yourself and find out. Well, what are they doing here? I imagine they're coming to church like you are. Well, I've never seen them before. Was that their fault? (laughs) Well, they took my seat. Well, thank you for saving it for them. How nice of you. And ironically, it can really just be a few people. It's even better when it's the entire church. But how we interact with those people that we've never seen before, that we don't know. You know, I'm sorry, I don't know if I've inter- you know, met you before. Are you from this area or something? Can make a whole difference. All the difference. I, it always amazes me how at Potluck, people that have not been to this church before will oftentimes eat by themselves. That should never be the case. And I know that human nature, we, we're drawn to people that we know and we haven't seen our friends. We want to share this with them or that with them. I get that. I understand that. But there is a, a hierarchy here, and that is the visitor, the guest comes first. So we can make them feel welcome. We want to put out a welcome mat, not a not welcome mat. And maybe you've had experiences in churches where you automatically felt not welcome. Nobody greets you at the door. Nobody says, glad you're here. Do you have plans for lunch? You find a seat and somebody says, oh, I'm sorry, that's saved. And after you're moving three times and you finally settle into a place. And maybe before the service even starts, you're wondering, what am I doing here? I'd rather be somewhere else, anywhere else. I've heard stories of individuals in, in other churches that for their first time, they were going to go to a church, a Seventh-day Adventist church, never been in one before. It took them months to get up the courage to go. Many times they would go and drive by and go home and drive by and go home. Sometimes they would actually park the car, and on the day this individual came in, he sat in the car trembling for like 20 minutes before he got out, got the nerve to get out, and walk into the front door. Does that make anybody a little bit nervous? I mean, we have guests here every week. Which one? That may have been the case for them, and maybe we were just too busy. Happens as pastors, too. I remember one district I went to, first Sabbath in this church. Didn't feel altogether welcome, uh, but that's okay. And we stayed, we were kind, we were friendly. I preached the sermon, sat down at a table. I found out later who it was. It was the head elder and his wife that came to sit by me. And for the next 40 minutes, they continued to pepper me with questions. He primarily, I felt like I was being interrogated. First about my sermon, why I said this, why I didn't say that. He was challenging why I had become a minister, my call to ministry, and every answer that I would give him, he would shake his head and say, no, you know, no, you're not called to ministry. And then I had become part of that conference uh, long before, but there was this tragedy, a plane crash, and so my father became the conference president there in Georgia Cumberland, and so he thought this was a political maneuver. Why are they sending you here to try and correct us? And it just went on and on and on, and I just couldn't wait to get out of there. And I remember getting in the car thinking, I don't ever want to come back to this church ever again. I don't want to work with this person. Yeah, I got the feeling real quick that I 
was not welcome. Now, I better tell you the rest of the story just because through the course of time there, we became very good friends. By God's grace, we did some wonderful ministry together, and that church, I I believe, grew leaps and bounds, again, by God's grace, not just in membership necessarily, but just in their maturity and their friendliness and all kinds of things. And uh, when we parted ways years later, we both wept about it. Uh, We both grew uh, from that experience. But I'll tell you, that first Sabbath, I was ready to be done. I was ready to be done. I, I felt that you're not welcome. And typically, our human response when we're not welcome is just throw up our hands and say, fine, I'll take my toys and go play somewhere else. If I'm not going to be appreciated here, if I'm not going to be liked here, if I'm not going to be received here, I'll go somewhere else. Paul had a similar experience, I believe, when he came to Corinth. And we're going to look at that today. And the ser- sermon title, as I've mentioned, when the church gets ugly, or I have here when Paul's challenging church, I guess I didn't get those coordinated, I'm sorry. Same idea. But this was a real challenge for Paul when he went to Corinth. And just to remind us, it's been a couple weeks now since we talked about Paul But last time we saw Paul ministering in Athens and his sermon on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17 to some intellectual elites. And there he uses fancy reasoning and sophisticated arguments that appealed to their intellect and and philosophy and reason and so on. And he quoted their thinkers and their philosophers. And in the end, Acts 17, 34 said, some men joined him and believed. It wasn't an overwhelming number, but some joined, and we praise the Lord for that, for the few. But we also looked at this quotation from Ministry of Healing. It says, the experience of the Apostle Paul in meeting the philosophers of Athens has a lesson for us. In presenting the gospel before the court, Areopagus, Paul met logic with logic, science with science, philosophy with philosophy, I imagine he had fun doing it. He had the pedigree to pull it off. The wisest of his hearers was astonished and silenced. His words could not be controverted, but the effort bore little fruit. Few were led to accept the gospel. Henceforth, Paul adopted a different manner of labor, and it says he avoided elaborate arguments and discussion of theories, and in simplicity, pointed men and women to Christ as the Savior of sinners. That's what we learned last time. And it reminds me of people that say, well, pastor, I don't know how to give a Bible study. I've never given one before. Oftentimes, those individuals give the best Bible studies because of the simplicity of it all, as they just relate their own experience and what the verse says. They're not trying to impress anybody and go around and round and round and confuse them. No, they're just very simple, very straightforward, and oftentimes get better results. 1 Corinthians 2 1 to 5, and Paul writes to them, he says, I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you, among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so this is on the lips of Paul much later, but he's talking about that time when he came to Corinth and how somehow his delivery changed. Yes, there was some, or there were some that came to a knowledge of the truth. But I wonder how many would have if Paul would have used a simpler means and method. 
finishing the verse, I was with you in weakness, in fear, in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in your wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so what did Paul learn in Athens? Paul learned that power is not found in human logic, in scientific arguments, in philosophy, in being able to quote all their well-known authors. No, it's found in books, or nor is it found in books such as How to Reach the Postmodern 101. It's found in the simple presentation of the gospel. And a reliance not on human cunning, but the power of the Holy Spirit to convict and convert. And so later to the Romans, turn with your Bible with me to Acts chapter 18 now. So we're trying to pick up our story now of Paul and his missionary journey. At the end of chapter 17, he has left Athens. And so we pick up the story now in Acts chapter 18, and we're in verse 1. Acts chapter 18, verse 1, we read, After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born to Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. We'll get to them in a moment, but let's just get a little context of Corinth Here's the map that we have been looking at. Athens is up there in the top left, and not too far to the left is Corinth. I know it's a little bit small there, but Athens and Corinth are just some 50 miles apart. It's like going from here to Spartanburg. It's a little distance, but it's not terribly far. And here's another picture. Corinth was on a narrow strip of land called the Osmanian Isthmus, or the Isthmus of Corinth. You see water there on both sides. And here's another satellite view. And this arrow shows where ancient Corinth was. And so typically, ships would unload on the east side of the isthmus and reload on the west side. And there was a sophisticated road system that would transport goods across land here. Even small ships were transported on wooden rollers. Why? Because this little bit of land could save them a 200-mile distance around this part of the land. Uh, Or to go all the way around uh, that part of Greece. In fact, even Nero attempted to build a cut-through, a canal, similar to the Panama Canal, but it was too challenging a project, and it was abandoned until more modern times. But that was on their minds. But because of this location, this was a main highway where you could find just about anything that you wanted. It was very conveniently situated with easy access to all parts of the Roman Empire, It was a great commercial center controlling both commerce moving by land, north and south, as well as by sea, east to west. Corinth was also considered one of the leading cities not only of Greece, but of the world. It was culturally diverse. It was home for various people groups, Greeks, Jews, Romans, travelers from every land. They all thronged the streets, each intent on business, but also pleasure or great athletic events in the Greek Empire. There was the Olympic Games, we've all heard of those, the Pathinian Games, and the Osmanian Games. Corinth, being on the Osmanian Isthmus, hosted the Osmanian Games, which took place every two years. And so you would have wrestling, you'd have track and field, you'd have weightlifting, and in fact, there was even an event called singing. And if you know your history, you know that Nero liked to himself be part of the singing event. And sometimes he would sing for an hour, as much as an hour and a half. And from what I'm told, Nero was not a very good singer. In fact, people would pretend to pass out so they could be carried out 
and not have to listen to Nero. But ironically, if you know anything else about Nero, he always won the competition. Because anyone who thought otherwise would be no more, and heads would roll. And so a lot of this, you know, you see the the theater for the outdoor games here. Behind it would be for the indoor, and maybe some of the singing events were there. I'm not sure. You have uh, the Temple to Apollos there in the middle with all the, the columns around it. And that one, there's parts of that still standing. In fact, here's a picture of that. The city was almost wholly given up to idolatry. Venus was the favorite goddess, the goddess of love and fertility. And the worship of Venus was connected with many demoralizing rites and ceremonies. And the Corinthians had become conspicuous, even among the heathen, for their gross immorality. And that's all I'm going to say about that. However, there were many other gods. Uh, Here's pictures of ruins of the Temple of Apollo, uh, built on an elevated plateau. Behind in that rocky hill is the, they call it the Acrocorinth, had other holy sites. Aphrodite's had a temple up there on the Acrocorinth as well. And so when you think of Corinth, you think of some very elites being served by peasants. You're thinking of cultural diversity. You're thinking of sporting events. You're thinking of large crowds, markets full of whatever you could desire. You're thinking of many temples to various gods, much of which were connected to debased rituals and immoral practices. That was the Corinth that Paul walked into. Picking it up here again in in verse 2, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born to Pontius, and who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because of Claudius, had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, talking about Paul, he stayed with them and worked. For by occupation, they were tent makers. So Paul came and he began making tents. And why was there a market for tents in such a sophisticated city, you might ask? Well, when the thousands would come for these games... They would need a place to stay, and many of them opted for tents and would stay on the outskirts so they could take in these events. And so he first meets Aquila and Priscilla. He stays with them, and they share this common trait. And a year and a half later, they would depart together. And in his letter to the Romans, he later speaks of them in this way. He says, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Notice they weren't paid by the church. They were not supported by the tithe. They were young professionals committed to Christ, dedicated to Christ, who had a burden for mission, whose hearts burned for mission. And they obviously made a big impact because Paul refers to them later. And in fact, if we pause for just a moment, even Paul, the greatest evangelist of the New Testament, is seen here as a self-supporting minister. Other verses bear this out. 1 Corinthians 4.12, and we labor working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure. And another place, 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 9, for you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God, independent, taking care of his own funding, his own financing, Another place, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 7. Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? I didn't ask anything of you. 
I was self-sufficient. I labored on my own. I made tents. I took odd jobs so I wouldn't be a burden to the cause. Another place, Acts 20, verse 34. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided my necessities and for those who were with me. Now, granted, Paul wasn't fully independent. We have other instances where the church shows him support and he's very thankful of that and he receives that. But I think it's a value for us to see that Paul did not want to be a burden and was willing to do whatever it took to spread the gospel. William Carey was one of the greatest missionaries to India, and he cobbled shoes for a living. But his passion was to give millions of Hindus the Bible in their own language. And he said it this way, I cobble shoes to pay expenses, but soul winning is my business. Don't you like that? I cobble shoes to pay expenses, but soul winning is my business. If every Christian would take on this mentality, would the church be a different place? Oh no, pastor, we put money in the offering plate when it comes by. That's your job. Can a pastor possibly do everything that needs to be done? Well, I don't get paid anything. Do you need to get paid anything? Has the Lord blessed you? Well, you're telling me I need to use some of my own money for God's cause? Why not? It's been done since all the way back in New Testament times, probably before that even. And so I think of the beginning of the church greatly benefiting from self-supporting ministries. People who are able to support themselves, but have a burden and a passion to spread the gospel. I think of somebody that I knew that was a doctor. I was telling someone about it just this week. And he, as a doctor, had a Bible study every Wednesday night in his office. And as he would meet with patients, not everyone would he invite, but if he had a spiritual conversation, felt impressed, he would say, you need to come to my Bible study. Well, where's your Bible study? It's right here in the waiting room of this very office. Okay, what time? It's every Wednesday night. Come, we'll feed you. And he would do exactly that. His wife would cook much of the day and provide these wonderful meals. And people would come and get a free meal and a Bible study. And it was all on his dime, something that he longed to do, in fact, was his passion. I believe he still does it today. You know other independent ministries? I think you've heard of a few of them. 3ABN, Remnant Publications, Fletcher Academy Incorporated. How about ASI or GYC, Maranatha, One Day Church Projects, Amazing Facts, Share Him. I mean, all of these are self-supporting ministries doing a great work in partnership with the church. And here you have Paul. Here you have Aquila and Priscilla as part of that. And in Acts 16, we met Lydia, a seller of purple in the city of Thyatira. She was a, had a large home. She helped establish the first church in Europe, we could say. And so here Lydia is a young professional who supports herself and finances the church. And the gospel is being is going forward, is being preached because of these individuals. I praise the Lord for young professionals, retired professionals, people with a keen mind for business that use that for ministry and to spread the gospel. And they don't wait for someone to say, hey, we have this position to offer you, we'll pay you if you do this. They just feel the calling of the Holy Spirit and they come alongside the local church and they say, hey, would this be a blessing? It sure would but we don't have the funds for it. Don't worry about the funds for it. I'm going to take care of that part. I just want to help in the work of God. And I believe the church has, has grown in wonderful ways by many of these independent ministries. 
No fanfare, no big to do, but out of service to their Lord and Savior, they feel like he has equipped them in unique ways that they can do something for him. You might be sitting there thinking, again, isn't that what the church is for? Yeah, the church has its role, certainly, but perhaps funds are lacking. I've been in many churches where that was the discussion for a long time. Not to say that we are, you know, have more funds than we know what to do with. We have to be very responsible with our funds here too. But I'm talking about some of these small churches where you have 20 members and to scrounge up $200, where's the money going to come from? Perhaps leadership is lacking in the local church. Perhaps the vision is lacking. And at times, perhaps the church is dysfunctional. And so for that, we have to look back at Paul's situation. We left off in verse 3. Let's pick up in verse 4 of Acts chapter 18. And he, Paul, reasoned in the synagogue. That's where he started with God's people. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. Praise the Lord. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Maybe he was leading up and this was the big punch that he wanted to give them. But when they opposed him, wait a second, they opposed who? They opposed Paul. Who's the they? The people in the synagogue, the people in the church. They opposed Paul and they blasphemed. And so Paul shook his garments and said to them, your blood be upon your heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshiped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Now, this is interesting. Paul preaches the straight gospel. He is rejected. They blaspheme. The people in the church kick him out. They give him the, you're not welcome. Get out of here. We don't want you here. We don't want your message here. And maybe Paul even knew that would be their response because he's been at this a little while. But notice he doesn't avoid that local church. He doesn't write them off. He says, I have to give them every every opportunity to understand the truth of the gospel. You know, the first few times I read through this, I thought, well, Paul's having a little bit of a bad attitude. Does it ever strike you that way? Kind of a, a fine, throw your hands up. His blood be on you and your shoulders. I'm going to take my toys and go somewhere else. And he marches off, you know, stomp, 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 stomp. And he goes to the house next door and slams the door. Boom. But honestly, as I've been reading this this week, I don't think that was the response that we get from Paul. I think Paul is laboring with them. He's seeking that they understand. And they come to a place where they have rejected what he says. He says, well, I wanted to give you every opportunity. And so I'm going to respect where you are. It's on your heads now. And I'm going to leave. And I'm going to go all the way right there. You know where I am. You know where you can find me. You have my email address. You have my cell number. 30 steps away. If you have any questions, I'm still here. That's an entirely different attitude than what I first saw when I read this. And then, as we continue on, the unthinkable happens. Verse 8. Then Crispus. How'd you like that name? The ruler of the synagogue. This is somebody pretty important, I'd say. Believe in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were what? Baptized. Wow. 
Look what's just happened. This is a huge breakthrough. This is somebody prominent in the church and they now believe and they've come in and they're baptized. And notice what uh, we, we read later. I thank God that I baptized Crispus. This is wonderful. This is amazing. This is, this is huge. And I want you to also see something that can slip by you awfully quick. But these two verses are very close together. In Athens, it said, some men joined the church, Acts 17, 34. But in Corinthians, or in Corinth, I should say, it says many believed and were baptized, 18, verse 8. There's a different approach. He's not trying to be all sophisticated. He's being very straightforward. And many are believing and are baptized. And then we have something here that seems a little peculiar. Verse 9, now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. And so he continued there a year and six months or a year and a half, teaching the word of God among them. This also sounds a little bit abrupt in the first reading of this. Why all of a sudden, you know, you have this big great breakthrough and now there's a vision of God saying, hang in there. Don't give up. Acts of the Apostles, page 249, says the hatred with which the Jews had always regarded the apostles was now intensified. The conversion and baptism of Christmas had the effect of exasperating instead of convincing these stubborn opposers. So now they're all the more upset. He's gotten one of our own. And so they're filled with hatred and it's only intensifying for Paul. Says they could not bring arguments to disprove Paul's preaching, and for lack of such evidence, they resorted to deception and malignant attack. They blasphemed the gospel in the name of Jesus, and in their blind anger, no words were too bitter, no device too low for them to use. Whoa! The church just got ugly. And we can't we can't go up against what he has to say, but we know we don't like what he has to say. And so we're gonna run him out of here on a rail. And there's nothing too low for us. Have mercy. They could not deny that Christ had worked miracles, but they declared that he had performed them through the power of Satan. And they boldly affirmed that the wonderful works wrought by Paul were accomplished through the same agency. I mean, that's pretty low. Pastor, Satan is behind you. And you preach of this Jesus who worked miracles, Satan was behind him too. And you are all a mess, and we want all of you gone. And, you know, you can understand how this would make a huge uproar in the community. And so it says, though Paul had a measure of success in Corinth, yet the wickedness that he saw and heard in that corrupt city almost disheartened him. I can imagine the depravity that he witnessed among the Gentiles and the contempt and insult that he received from the Jews caused him great anguish of spirit. Even the great apostle Paul got discouraged at times. He wasn't invincible. And how could you not be discouraged? The Gentiles, I mean, they have so far to come. And the church is hostile and accusing him of being empowered by Satan. And it says this, as he, Paul, was planning to leave the city for a more promising field and seeking earnestly to understand his duty, the Lord appeared to him in vision. And that's what we have, what we just read. Maybe we should read it again. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by vision. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. And so he says, okay, Lord, I'll stay. And maybe somebody's listening to this and they've had enough. 
They've been maligned. They've been attacked. Character assassination. They pulled out every stop. And you say, I've had enough. I'm over it. I'm leaving this ministry. I'm leaving this church. I'm going to just leave it all behind. I don't need this. But maybe God is saying, no, I need you. I need you to stay right where you are. I need you to trust me because I'm going to be with you. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to keep you safe. I'm going to give you success. I need you right here. And so Paul says, okay. And he continues there for another year and a half, teaching the word of God among the people. You know, those verses to me sound a lot like this verse. Same promise God gave to young Jeremiah, probably a teenager. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, says the Lord, to deliver you. Jeremiah 1.19. Have you ever been discouraged in ministry? Been up against a hostile church? Have you been among people that seem so far from spiritual things? And you thought, certainly the Lord doesn't want me to stay here. And I imagine that's what Paul thought. But God says, Paul, stay there. Don't be afraid. Don't keep silent. Because I'm here, I'm with you, and I'll protect you. And you might say, well, I don't see the Lord giving me any visions. Maybe not. But maybe it's a Bible verse he led you to. Maybe it's a conversation. Maybe it's a sermon. Maybe it's this one. I don't know. Maybe it's all the above over the course of the last few days, and God is trying to get your attention to assure you that it's his will that you stick with it, and he'll make it plain. And so he does that to Paul. He stays there a year and a half. And Spirit of Prophecy says he's not just preaching, but he's visiting. He's encouraging the sick. He's going from house to house. He's comforting the afflicted, all in the name of Jesus. Paul stays not because of his trust and his skill to speak and reason. No, he's staying in full distrust of himself and complete trust in the Holy Spirit to win the hearts and minds of these people that I don't know how it's going to work. But you brought me here. I imagine later, Paul would remember this very experience you know, we can look back and we can see more in totality what God did. I imagine this is what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. I had no idea that this would come together that way. I had no idea that God would work this way. I had no idea that this would happen and explode. I thought there was no hope for this town. I was ready to shake the dust off my feet. He said that to the disciples. I was ready to do it myself. Friends, it's always God that gives success in the work. It's always God that goes before us. It's always God that follows up behind us. It's always God that moves mountains. It's always God that uses challenges to advance his cause. I may not see how, your ear may be telling you something different, your heart may falter at times, but the reality is you cannot begin to imagine the incredible, amazing, mind-boggling things God has in store for you if you'll simply trust him. Does that mean it'll be easy? Maybe we should just keep reading. Verse 12, when Gallio was proconsul of Acacia, the Jews... This is the church again, with one accord. Notice how they can unite against. But anyway, Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. So Galileo was 
a noted Roman jurist, and here's a case where the church is taking Paul to court, to the Roman authorities, and saying, persecute this man. We hate him. We don't want him. We want him gone. If you want to kill him, that's fine with us. But notice how Galileo responds. Verse 14. And don't miss how this begins. And when Paul was about to open his mouth. Catch that part? What's Paul going to say? Well, we'll never know. But he was about to open his mouth. He was about to say something. He was about to defend himself. He was about to say, have you thought of this? Have you thought of that? He was about to get himself out if he could. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, that's the second table of the law, remember last week? O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, in reference to really that first table, how you worship God, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. Pretty good example of separation of church and state, really. And he drove them from the judgment seat. He said, look, this is between you all. I'm not going to get involved in these matters. He hasn't broken any laws of the land. And he says, you need to leave my courtroom. Verse 16, he drove them from the judgment seat. Verse 17, then all the Greeks, these would be the Gentiles, took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, another key church person, and look what, it, what they did. This is the crowds now. They took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Galileo took no notice of these things. I said, whoa. I mean, for the first time in Paul's ministry, the mob turns in his favor. And I find it extra interesting how Ellen White responds to this. She quotes the same verse we just read. And then she says, thus Christianity obtained a signal victory. Whoa, a signal victory. Paul does not even have to open his mouth. God does it. And that shouldn't come as a surprise because God always does it. And sometimes we forget that it's his work, start to finish. We just look for the leading of the Holy Spirit and we follow the Spirit. But I imagine there's someone here that needs a signal victory in the name of Christ. You know, it goes on to say in verse 18, so Paul still remained a good while. I mean, when God gives you a signal victory, you don't just up and leave. So he continues to work and labor for the people there. How long? We don't know, a good while. But I imagine there's somebody here that needs a signal victory in the name of Jesus Christ. And maybe you're about to open your mouth. You're about to fix it. You're about to take care of it. I know what needs to be done. I'm about to do it. But maybe God says, no, 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 I don't want you to do that. Be still and see the hand of the Lord your God. Maybe there's a ministry that's struggling. Funding is not there. Human resources are slim. The way forward looks bleak. And you need a signal victory in the name of Jesus Christ. Maybe it's closer to home. It's decision time. You feel the Lord led you to that school, but the finances, again, are not there. You're not sure how you're going to get the funds to complete this semester even. And you placed it before the Lord. And you feel he wants to, you to remain there. But you need a signal victory in the name of Jesus Christ. Perhaps it's an ugly custody case. And the possible outcomes break your heart. I've heard of cases where the child is spanked and verbally abused if the name of Jesus is even mentioned in the home. Lord, where are you in the midst of all this? 
and you're crying out to the Lord, you're saying, I need a signal victory in the name of Jesus Christ. I need you to do something for this young person that I can't do. Perhaps you've been laboring with your adult children. They're at the top of your prayer list, but they're involved in things that concern you as a parent. And you desire them to have a closer walk with the Lord, but you feel trapped knowing what to do, and you need a signal victory in the name of Jesus Christ. Maybe here there's a marriage that's struggling and things seem overwhelmingly challenging. Everything seems wrong, forced, mechanical. You need a signal victory in the name of Jesus Christ. Maybe it's your own experience with the Lord. It seems like you're just treading water that you're going nowhere. The fire's gone out. The passion for ministry, for the church, for reading your own Bible seems to be absent. You need a signal victory in the name of Jesus Christ. Well, friends, wherever you are, whatever your circumstance Know this, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of you the things which God has prepared for you who love him. He has a plan beyond anything you can see, beyond anything lie the devil may be telling you, God has a plan for you, and it's better than you can even imagine. Keep trusting, keep moving forward, keep praying, and see how the Lord will work for you. Like Paul, you may not even need to open your mouth in your own defense. And so, yes, the gospel moved forward in this heathen, sin-filled, hardened Corinth because of a small few who are willing to give their all to Christ and to the furtherance of the gospel. And by God's grace, God raised up a powerful work in Corinth. And if he can do that in hopeless sin-filled, sex-jaded, morally-twisted Corinth with a dysfunctional church and then turn it into a functional church. Is there anything in your life that's too hard? That God can't bring about a signal victory in the name of Jesus Christ? I mean, Jeremiah 32, 27, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? No, absolutely not. few verses before. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. So I don't care what you're struggling with. There's nothing too hard for God. I don't know how I'm going to get past this. You will. Just claim the power of Jesus Christ. He'll give you a signal victory. Well, I don't even know what to say. Maybe you won't even have to open your mouth. Luke 1 verse 37 this is out of the Christmas story. Elizabeth's barren. For God, nothing will be impossible. Matthew 19, 36. But Jesus looked at them and said, with men, this is impossible. There are impossibilities. And who are they with? They're with men. They're with women. They're with people like us. But with God, all things are possible. Do you need a signal victory this morning? Deuteronomy 20, verse 4. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. It's the God of the Old Testament, the same God in the New Testament. It's the same God in 2020. And he'll give you a signal victory today. Psalm 3, verse 8, from the Lord comes deliverance. I like that verse too. And 1 Corinthians 15, 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so again, I ask, do you need a signal victory this morning? Then ask, trusting that he hears you and that his plan is above and beyond what you can even imagine or think or comprehend. Dear Heavenly Father, as we've been following 
for some time now, the journey of Paul, he starts out so brazen, so in need of humility. He needs time away in the wilderness. He needs time for you to work on his heart. He involves himself in ministry, and then he's pulled back out. And every step along the way, we see how you're continually building and and molding his character to better honor and serve you. And Lord, we're no different. We come to you a mess. And every challenge along the way, you're longing to teach us something, to grow us, to stretch us, that we may trust you regardless of what comes our way that we can sing through it all, I've learned to trust in Jesus. And so here in Corinth, another chapter of Paul's life where he learns to trust amidst some of the hardest criticisms, but through it all, you raise up a group of people, the Corinthian church, for your glory. Lord, whatever we're going through today, may we learn to trust in Jesus. May we learn to trust in you, that you will bring us through through a signal victory, not in and of ourselves, but of Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.